thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 30. This week, Utah Air National Guard Major Sean Demeter joins us to talk all about chaff, flares, and other decoys we collectively call expendables. Hit it. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, exploring the world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people that employ them. Now it's time to turn and burn with your hosts, retired US Navy fighter pilots, Vincent Aiello and Brian Sinclair. Actually, sorry to say you're stuck with just me, Jello, this week. Sunshine is gallivanting around Alaska in his new job. And I'm out here in the deep south finishing up some training, so we couldn't quite connect. And it's just going to be me this week, but I know you'll forgive us. We'll get sunshine back next time. Anyway, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This is episode 30. And if that intro sounded a little different to you, that's because our friend Matt Reardon provided that intro. We had talked about some audio stuff, and he came along and said, hey, can I do an intro? And I said, sure. So if you liked it and you want to submit your own or the outro, feel free to do so. Get a good recording, make it customized to the way you think it should sound, and send it to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. Anyway, we will get to our interview with Bauer in just a little bit. We're going to talk not just about expendables, but also the Air National Guard and deployments over in South Korea. But first, as always, some announcements and some listener questions. First off, happy Veterans Day for those of you to whom it applies. This is that one day a year. We always thank people for their service. And so this show is a way to do that. We have veterans on here all the time, as you know, and we try to celebrate their service. So if you see a veteran today, thank them for their service. And just, you know, enjoy the freedoms that we provide you because they don't come free couple announcements on our website. First off is on the About page. We now have some testimonials, which are from those of you who have sent in comments in the past that you like the show. So if you go on there, you might see that maybe one day it's one person, but another day it might be yours because it is revolving every time you reload the website. It'll have someone else show up on there. So if you find yourself on there and you don't want us to use it, well, let me know and we'll take it down. But I don't think that should be a problem. Another thing is, if you click over on the Musings tab, you'll see yet another update on my 2003 deployment, the next installment chronicling that eight months when we were deployed off the coast of Iraq. And so I think you might find that one pretty interesting. And in another month or so, we'll wrap it up with one final installment on what that deployment was like as it was time to come home. 
All right, on Patreon, we have a new strike lead, Travis Barker, and we have our first mission commander, Bill Horvath, who was, in fact, our first air boss some months ago. He's been hanging around on Patreon, providing good comments, and always eager to lend his advice on things, and he stepped up to be a mission commander here, and we really do appreciate that, Bill. So we'll get a T-shirt off to you, and we'll schedule a Skype call, just you and me, here as soon as your schedule permits it. All right, on to listener questions. First is from Nick Matveev, who is a Patreon section lead, so he gets head-of-line privileges with his questions. He says, you mentioned that there are top 10 pilots for carrier landings. Is there any tracking system for tactical performance during training? For example, kill ratios or successful missions. And how is it measured, individually or by squadron? Does squadron performance have any impact on squadron status or deployment opportunities? So great question, Nick. In training, usually there is only something like this if you're doing a structured training evolution like an SFARP or Strike Fighter Advanced Readiness Program. That is what I used to implement when I worked at the weapons school in Lemoore, 2006 to 2009. And so what will happen there is during that course of training, they'll have a greenie board, a lot like the landing board. And it's not so much, you know, the kill ratios or successful missions, generally what they will put up there are valid or invalid shots, like we talked about on episode seven with Grand. So there's also a system to measure valid drops, air to ground drops. And so generally we will put up there maybe green for valid, red for invalid. And it's just a way to kind of brag and also a way for the training officer to keep track of who's maybe struggling and provide some extra training. And at the end of all that, it really doesn't matter much. I mean, I think the air wing commander probably already knows which squadrons are doing a better job. But, you know, it's for bragging rights. And then the weapon school who puts on the SVARP in that example could use that data for feedback at the end to say, hey, your squadron did well here. It could seek improvement there. But for the most part, it's just for personal bragging. But that's a good question. All right, next, let's take a phone call. Yeah, Jello, this is Cobra from Virginia. I'm an ex-F4 uh, driver from the late 60s and 70s. And I have a question for you. After all these years, do you think the Navy will ever admit that Irish and Duke didn't get shot down? They ran out of gas. The guy that got shot down two weeks prior was the CAG, and they just used it because they didn't want to look bad back then. So that's the question. I probably won't get answered, but you're doing a great job, and keep up the good work. Thank you. All right, so Cobra is referring to Randy Cunningham and Willie Driscoll's shootdown that we discussed on episode nine called Vietnam Ace. So Cobra, I posed your question to Willie Driscoll. We still keep in touch. And he was a little mystified by your assertion here. And in fact, he has audio, I've listened to it myself, where you hear other aircraft calling for the F-4 in a spin on fire to get out of there. And so Willie Driscoll's point is that an aircraft is not going to be on fire if it's out of fuel. And I don't know about you, but conspiracy theories are tough to cover up. I mean, it's hard enough for one person to lie and keep a straight story. So uh, there are eyewitnesses that the F-4 was on fire and in a spin as Willie D and Randy Cunningham tell the story. And so not sure where the conspiracy theory originates, but no. I don't think they're ever going to come clean on something that isn't true. 
All right, next, another email. This is from Jacob Meltzer. He is a Patreon division lead who also gets head-of-line privileges. He says, in a world where two-seat versions of most fourth-generation fighters exist, why not fly those exclusively? My thinking is that an extra pair of eyes and hands seems to be a massive asset. FA-18Ds used by the MAGTAF come to mind. You remember, that's the Marine Air Ground Task Force we talked about in episode, I believe it was 27. Are there any significant performance trade-offs with an extra seat on board? It seems like many foreign militaries tend to prefer these two-seat variants. F-15SA, F-15SG, and K come to mind, as well as SU-30MKM, SU-30MKI, etc. And yet, to date, no fifth-generation fighter seems to have spawned a two-seater. And that is true. The F-22 and F-35 are both only single-seater there, Jacob. So this is as deep and you know, extensive as a question as there's ever been. I'm trying to think of an analogy in some other world, but nothing comes rushing to mind. There are always trade-offs, Jacob. You know, Sunshine talked about that in a Facebook Live session long ago. You're right. Sometimes an extra set of eyes and another brain is an asset, but frankly, sometimes it can be a detriment depending on how well the two work together. And so I don't have a good answer for you on this one. I have mostly flown single seat, and I was would argue pretty effective. The few times I did fly two-seaters, mainly as an instructor at the weapon school, as I earlier described, because I had other weapon school instructors with me, the situational awareness that they afforded me as the pilot and the task sharing I was able to do with them was phenomenal and almost made a convert out of me. But interestingly, since they did a lot of the communications, I found my situational awareness was actually lower when we were doing administrative portions of the flight, like climbing to different altitudes or descending to come home, because without being the one communicating with air traffic control, it just didn't sink in as well. So this is an argument that has been going on as long as there's been manned fighters. And I don't know what to tell you, except that it's possible that Western training here in the US is sufficiently superior enough that single seat fighters are still effective. Not to say that our two-seat fighters are not, but we can't afford to do it because what you gain in a single-seat fighter is a little bit more fuel in the case of the FA-18D and F. You have a little bit more simplicity in systems because you don't have a second cockpit with the other ejection seat. You have less people in the event of a mishap. You have less bedding in the case of an aircraft carrier. And by that, I just mean racks and people in the squadron. But those aren't necessarily always good things. And so, again, this isn't something that's ever going to be solved. I don't know if other countries do it to make up for perhaps their training not being as good. I don't mean to accuse anyone, but, you know, I've danced all around the subject. I don't know that I can say much more. So uh, someone made the decision. Someone looked at it and said, this makes sense not to have to build a two-seat version. And so off they go. And, and as I've said, in the Navy and the Marine Corps, Pretty much the two-seat squadrons and the single-seat squadrons are all interchangeable, with the exception of the one-mission forward air controller airborne, which in the Navy and Marine Corps, we only do in two-seaters, but the Air Force in the F-16 and A-10 does in single-seaters. So, tough question, Jacob. Um, can't answer it any better than that, sorry to say. All right, Jim Hearson from Blightly asks, in the Mongo episode, I was wondering whether having one pair sweeping in air-to-air -air mode and the other two in air-to-ground was ever an option. It would keep both situational awareness plates spinning, perhaps. 
So Jim, that's a good idea in theory. Uh, what you're missing is that in the old days with the F-18, and really to a degree today with just the F-18, there's really no reason to be running around in air-to-ground mode. You're, you're not going to detect anything that is going to be useful to you when you're up at 30,000 feet ingressing to the target. Now, an EA-18 is a different story because they're going to be detecting different surface-to-air threats and emitters and painting a picture for the integrated air defense that is useful to us. But the APG-65 and then 73, and even our modern AESA, really isn't going to build any valuable picture that will aid us. So there's really no need, especially back in the early 90s, for two guys to be looking at the ground. All they'll be doing is painting of an image of the ground, and we already know where we're flying and where we're going. You're not going to pick up any surface-to-air threats or anything else. So no, the best thing they should have done back then, and I think Mongo did a very good job of saying, hey, look, the F-18 was new. We were growing. We had a lot of A-7 guys that did it the old way. And so, you know, the best thing would be to sanitize the air-to-air picture, pick up any immediate threats that way, keep your eyeballs out for surface-to-air threats, and when the time comes, go into air-to-ground mode so that you can prepare your weapons for release, detect the target with the radar and or FLIR, and then do what you have to do and then go back into air-to-air mode. So, good idea, but no, not really the necessary option back in 1991. All right, well, why don't we jump into our interview here with Bauer. We are going to talk about air-launched expendables and decoys and a little bit about the Air National Guard and deployments to Korea. So enjoy it, and we'll see you on the backside. All right, today the Fighter Pilot Podcast is in Atlanta, Georgia, and joining us is Utah Air National Guard Major Sean Demeter. Call sign Bauer. Did I pronounce that right, Bauer? Yeah, Demeter. Demeter. Yeah. I didn't pronounce it right. Yeah, no, Longy. It's all good. (laughs) I've been called worse. All right. Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. So Bauer, yeah, anyway, we'll get to that. All right. Well, welcome, dude. We are going to talk expendables today, and thank you for coming in and doing this with us. All right. Uh, And so uh, before we do, though, why don't you give us a little background on who you are and where you've been? So where are you from? How'd you get into flying? And what are you doing now? All right. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Uh, it's pretty cool to have this opportunity to do this. Cool. Um, so I grew up uh, Milwaukee. My dad was Air Force, and uh, he got into the Air Force after high school. He, uh, unfortunately, his eyesight, he had to wear glasses, so he couldn't be a pilot, but he always had a love for airplanes. Mm-hmm. So he passed that on to me. Uh, we went back to Wisconsin, and then ever since I was a little kid, all I wanted to do was fly F-16s. So grew up, uh, well, I can't really say I grew up, but uh, I got older and then decided to go to the Air Force Academy. I <laughs> was lucky enough to get picked up there. Then uh, pilot training after that, went to Laughlin. Uh, I faped, and that's uh, in the Air Force. I think in the Navy it's called a surgrad, and in the Air Force we call it a fape, a first okay. assignment instructor pilot. Okay, so you stick around and Yeah, so I graduated. Instructor. I went from one side of the table as a student and, and sat on cool. the other side and was teaching. So. Um, I was lucky enough, I was one of the last guys to go through tweets before the squadron turned over to T-6s. So then I came back and uh, was a T-6 FAPE. And then after that, got my F-16, uh, went through Luke for training for that, then on to Osan with a hill follow-on, and that's how uh, we ended up in Utah, and that's where I currently live now. So. Cool. So you ended up wanting F-16s as a kid and getting it as you were older. Yeah, so it was really cool. I remember when I graduated pilot training, Looking at my dad, right, and when I got my F-16, and when I graduated from the B Corps, sorry, not pod training, but uh-huh. I looked at him, and he's like, so you did it. And I'm like, yeah, now what do I do, you know? Because it was everybody everybody who knew me growing up, family and friends and everything, knew I wanted to fly F-16. Yeah. So cool. And then I've actually had a pretty unique career flying-wise. 
I flew F-16s, like I said, in the Air Force, but then the last thing I did was I went and flew the MC-12, which is a King Air 350, and that was the tactical ISR, which is intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. The main job of that airplane, basically, we were hunters. We'd show up, and they'd say, go find this guy, and we'd be like, okay, and we would go find the individual we looked for, and we worked with uh, a lot of really cool people and organizations doing that. Uh, I left active duty, joined the Utah Air National Guard, so now I fly the tanker, the KC-135R. And uh, so I've gone from getting gas to giving gas, and then I've also gone to the TAC ISR part. And that was cool because from that aspect, I got to see working with fighters again. This time, you know, when we find somebody, they might have to get involved. So we worked with them, too. So I had, I had a unique insight on that, on what they were doing when we, you know, when we tell them about something. And then same thing, like, giving the gas, you know, I knew what it was like to get gas mm-hmm. and all that stuff from, from a tanker. So, uh, it's been, it's been really cool. And, uh, now I'm still a part-time guard guy, not doing the contracting thing and, uh, flying for an airline now. Okay, cool. Which is how we met. All right. So just to go back, you, you said the tweet, that's the T-33, right? The side-by-side T-37. T-37. It was a Cessna. Yep. And oh, that, okay. that's the T-6 replaced that. And that one is fully gone now. It's been okay. years that since the Air Force has flown the tour. And that was their basic kind of first... It was their primary trainer, airplane. yep. Yeah. And it yep. sat side by side, so if the instructor didn't like something you were doing... He'd reach he could, over and grab the He'd reach over and yeah. smack you. <laughs> All right. And then uh, you said you've you've given gas, you've taken gas, you were the killer at one point, then you were the hunter, and I guess arguably a hunter-killer and an F-16 as well, depending on some yeah. of the missions. But yep. Okay, so very cool. You have quite the wide range of experience and history there. Yeah, I've been really lucky. Okay, awesome. And you have certainly employed our subject today, and that is decoys or expendables or items, we sometimes call it in the Navy. Yeah. I don't know if you guys call it that. So let's talk in big picture terms first off. What, what are expendables? The simplest way I would put it is basically it's a way to try to hide yourself or mask yourself, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously flying fast jets, pointy nose jets and stuff, they're usually looking for somebody and you need to try to give yourself the best advantage you can in a fight. And I think with expendables, it, it tries to give you just an upper hand. Okay. And what kinds are there? So there's chaff, flare, and then there's also uh, decoys, at, le- mm-hmm. at least from my aspect in the F-16 and the Air Force, that's what we, right. we use. So, And there could be others, and we're specifically only going to talk today about aircraft employed expendables because, you know, ships can actually put out expendables and uh, there are mortar, chaff mortars, yeah, I believe, I to so, create yeah. screens and whatnot. All right. So first off, do you, I mean, what's the history on this? Uh, do, when did decoys or expendables first start being used, do you know? From my understanding, uh, once they invented radar, it didn't take them much time to figure out a way to try to fool radar. So <laughs> I think it was it was radar came along and then somebody said, hey, let's throw chaff in there and let's see if we can confuse these guys when they're trying to find us. So That is the eternal battle, if you will, right? Uh, the arms racers. Anytime yeah. time there's something developed, there's something developed to counter it yeah. and then some counter <laughs> to that counter. And in fact, we'll get into that here in a little bit. All right. So let's start with chaff. Tell us what chaff is. Uh, the best way, uh, again, uh, to put it simply, just go take some, uh, you know, aluminum foil, cut it into strips and then take a bunch of it and then put it on an airplane and shoot it out when you think someone's trying to shoot at you. Okay. That's, that's probably the simplest way I can describe it. Yeah. Well, and specifically to that point, it's working against radars, essentially. Yeah, it's trying to scramble the, the picture they're looking at. So any kind of heat seeking or anything that looks for a heat signature, it's not going to be effective against that. Right. This is mainly something that will try to confuse radar. Okay. So it's effectively the electromagnetic equivalent of a smoke screen. Yeah. Right? yeah. Throw up a bunch of smoke and disappear behind it. Yep. And in this case, we can put out, to your point, aluminum-coated 
fiberglass. It used to be, I guess, foil, and now it's aluminum-coated fiberglass. And these are called dipoles, anywhere from about a quarter of an inch to two inches. And we can put them out. And really, as I understand it, we can do one of two things. We can either try to create a mask like that smoke screen to prevent ourselves from being detected, or we can use it to try to break the lock once a radar or a missile is already uh, locked onto us. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so how do we put these out, first off? I mean, chaff and flares and the other stuff, with the exception of the toad decoys we'll talk about in a moment, all pretty much come out the same way. But what's on our aircraft that allows us to dispense expendables? So on, on the F-16, we called them buckets. Um, and it was a place on the, on the rear of the aircraft. And uh, basically, it was like a shotgun shell. When you chose to eject any kind of uh, countermeasures, it would shotgun shell would go off, it would shoot it out, and then it would make a plume behind the aircraft there. Right. Okay. So, and, and it was, if, if you're just going straight and level and you're not doing much and you just shot some chaff out, you know, it's, it's not going to be as effective. You're not going to get as big of a plume. You know, we were always trained and, and the way we employed it was basically, you know, you punch it out and you put G on the airplane and that kind of creates a bigger plume. And it almost kind of like, think about it like a magician. They're using misdirection there, you know, right. if, if he's sitting there and he just keeps his hands in the same spot and he's trying to misdirect you to look at something so he can slide the card, you know, do the sleight of hand or something like that. If there's no misdirection and, and he's just staying still, it's going to be pretty obvious what's going on. But the same thing in the, in the jet, if this makes sense, you know, you, you'd eject the chaff and then you'd want to perform some kind of maneuver, either a dive or a turn or something like that, because you're essentially trying to misdirect the radar and get away while it's locking onto that or trying to sort it out. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, word pictures are always hard on the podcast, but if an aircraft is flying from left to right and let's say a seeker is following it, and then a chaff plume comes out. It's got a little bit of forward velocity, but it begins to slow down immediately. But if the aircraft just continues going straight ahead, then it's not that difficult for the seeker to just keep looking straight ahead. But if it, to your point, pulls straight up or rolls inverted and pulls down, now the chaff blooms a little better, like you said, because of the airflow behind it from the lift being created. But also now your aircraft is going a different direction, not just the way it was. Okay, that makes sense. All right, so let's move on to flares. What's the difference between flares compared to chaff? The idea is the same, but the biggest thing here is it's using heat. So you're, you're putting out a very hot source for a heat-seeking missile to bite off on. Sure. Well, or theoretically, I suppose, uh, any heat-seeking system, maybe yes. an infrared search and track or yeah. something along yeah. those lines. Okay. So we have, what, different kinds of flares, or what, what, do, we, what do we have there? Do yeah, they, they have uh, – I know the main ones that we use were magnesium. Okay. That was typically what they were made out of. Again, it was just a shotgun shell sat right in the back with the chaff, and uh, you'd punch those out. And then um, and I think there's, if I remember right, you know, different intensities of the flares, and then uh, there's IR, the infrared flares as well. Right. Yeah, so I did a little research because it's been a couple of years, like for you, since we've thought about this. And so what I found was that there are pyrotechnic and pyrophoric flares. And so the pyrotechnic burn real bright. These are the ones you'll see in photographs and on the movies. And, and you know, they're pretty smoky as well. And in fact, uh, you're right, magnesium pellets. And then your pyrophoric are a little bit less visible, but they're fast oxidizing metals, which I thought was kind of interesting. And there was even one website I was looking at that someone was complaining about what happens to all this stuff when it lands on the ground. And I guess it's a valid question. And what they found was that for these pyrophoric flare content or, or insides, it was basically just rusted metal by the time it hit oh, there, but it was only a couple wow. ounces, so yeah, not a yeah. big deal. And, and same thing with the chaff. I mean, it dispenses, and now you have all these thousands of very small aluminum 
coated fiberglass fibers, but you know they're they're really not hurting anything. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, no. the big deal with flares. I don't know if you dealt with this in Utah, but we were right across the range from you in Fallon. Uh, I was a couple tours, and every summer we had flare restrictions because if they don't burn out, which sure. takes about ten seconds, yeah, if they don't burn out before they hit the ground, they could start fires. Yeah, I think we used to get those. Um, we call it the Uter. It's the Utah test and uh, training range, right? And um, there would be restrictions. I think you, if I remember right. Uh, there were some times of the year or, or certain times where you had to be above a certain altitude, so mm-hmm. it would guarantee that it would burn out by right. the time it got to the ground. So Yeah, for us, I believe it was 2,000 feet always, and then in the summertime, I think they just did away with flares yeah. completely. Maybe that was it. Maybe we had an, an always yeah. restriction or something. I don't remember. And but. you wouldn't think the desert would catch on fire, yeah, yeah. but there's enough sagebrush. that. Yeah. And the problem for us was that that is, in, in the case of the Nevada test range, out there by Fallon, that is our premier test range. So if that goes up, which it has on occasion, then training stops yeah. because you got your fire aircraft out there and the troops on the ground, if yeah. you will, fire troops. And so then that really cuts into Top Gun and everybody else's training. So yep. uh, same thing for you guys. Yeah, I once shot a uh, Maverick in the Uter. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I never a... got a chance to. I oh, no? I just flew around with, uh, I, I get the name escapes me, but it was just the, the training ones that just had the camera. Okay. So you could get all the symbology and see everything, right. but it was it wasn't one you could Just shoot. A captive so, yeah. one. Yeah, yep. you know, I got to shoot an IR Maverick, and uh, my listeners know that every time I talk about something, I got to fire it. I usually say it didn't go well because my uh, Sidewinder and my Sparrow both didn't work out, but my uh, my Maverick did. It was That's pretty cool. cool. Yeah, yeah I, I never got to go to an Archer. For us, we call it, it was Combat Archer where we'd shoot right. missiles, so I didn't get to shoot... At the time, it would have been just AIM-9 or um, AIM-120. Okay. So I never shot a missile, but I've dropped tons of JDAM and GBUs, the sure. laser-guided bombs and all that mm-hmm. stuff, dumb bombs and everything, right. and shot the gun, but yeah. Well, so getting back to flares in that point, uh, if you had had a chance to shoot the AIM-9 like I did, you might have shot that at the Lu 2 which is like a bomb dropped almost. You know, We carry it on our wing stations on a multiple ejector rack, and those will fall for a little bit and then open a parachute and come down. And oh. the nice thing about those is that we can then get out of the way, turn around, lock it up with your AIM-9 and, and fire at it. Huh. Uh, or they've got some that provide light at night, kind of like the uh, you might see in war movies where they, you know, illumination yeah. over the battlefield yeah. and stuff like that. So we can drop those, and, and then we have others that we can drop in the water, and then we need a couple sources because, you know, we when we're on deployment on the carrier, uh, you probably never had to deal with this, but, you know, we don't, always have good ranges nearby. And so sometimes we would drop a couple marine locator marker flares in the water. And as long as you had more than one, otherwise you'd get disoriented if it was really dark. As long as you had two or more, then we could drop bombs on those at night. So lots of different kinds. But again, the bread and butter for TAC Air, tactical aviation and fighters, are the ones like you talked about that we carry internally. And then uh, we'll talk in a moment about how we dispense those. All right, so that's chaff and flare. Now we have a couple more obscure, I would call them, uh, types of decoys. One is like an active decoy. What do you know about those? Did you guys ever carry anything like that in the F-16? Uh, yeah, we carried towed decoys. Okay, towed. What, we're going to get to that one do. next. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but as far as anything else that was active, no. Okay, so in the very same holes, if you will, that we can put chaff or flare, we had an active decoy we could load in there. And what it would do is when you dispensed it, and these things were super expensive. I don't remember the exact amount, but we very rarely carried them. And when you did, you didn't check them, as we'll mention in a moment here. But what you would do is if you had a threat, a certain type of threat locking onto you, if you were within a certain envelope, within the nose, then you could dispense this thing because what it would do is it would come out and, of course, fare into the airstream that you're traveling, and it would open its eyes, if you will, and within a certain 
quadrant, it would look for something looking at you, and then it would try to decoy it off onto itself. And so again, to your point earlier, if you maneuvered and dropped this, then whatever system was looking at you, provided it was the right kind of system, and we'll deliberately be vague here for the sake of security type stuff, uh, then it would hopefully lock onto either, or I should say it would decoy the seeker or the missile into locking on it instead of the aircraft. And then uh, it would hopefully fall harmlessly away while you escaped. And that really is then what the toad decoys do. So talk to us a little bit about our fourth kind, the uh, toad decoys. With the, uh, with the toad decoy, uh, basically part of our fence check. So fence check for us is basically what you do to arm the airplane up. You cross, you know, a line on a map, say, and you know past that line, things might not be in your favor. Uh, so you need to arm certain weapons, turn certain systems on, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially like crossing the fence, you know. Um, and one of the things that we would do is deploy the um, toy decoys. So essentially it was a box, I guess, for lack of a better term, on the end of a cable that was far behind the aircraft. And uh, it would basically just stay back there and kind of follow you around, obviously. Um, and if anything, any threat came up, um, it would, you know, try to bait that missile or system, whatever it was off onto that away from you. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. You guys would deploy it early, not early, but as kind of a preventative type measure. Yeah, there was, I remember when I was in Korea, I think that was part of it. Hmm. So we didn't in in training, like on an an everyday sortie, I mean, we didn't have them and employ them because obviously if they don't come back in, then you got to drop them and then that's money and everything. But uh, we would go through the switchology and still simulate it. Okay. But yeah, in Korea, it was always part of our fence check was putting, if I, I mean, that was 10 years ago, but I mean, (laughs) I'm pretty sure we'd used to do that normally. So, well, so we didn't have toad decoys on the legacy Hornet that I used to fly, but towards the end on the super Hornet, they showed up. Now, I don't know where you load them on the F-16, but on the super Hornet, it was basically right between the engines. And so when it streamed out, and if you started maneuvering, especially an afterburner, it would basically burn the cord off. Oh. And so we never, at least when I left, we didn't do them preemptively. They were always a reactive type countermeasure. And then if you had to maneuver and you ended up burning it off, well, so be it. Uh, and then to your point, if you ended up still having it and you were done with it, then you had a method to cut it yeah. off and then yeah. off it went. And so, yeah, what I uh, reminded myself of today is that toe decoys use a three-step process that uh, reminds me a lot of my college dating. That was suppression, deception, and seduction. Now, I never made it generally to the third step <laughs> in that, but you know, the, uh, the what the, what the toad decoy would do is it would it would try to suppress any type of threat by basically trying to prevent it from locking on. So, if someone's looking at us and we can do it, then we're going to suppress that system from locking. And then if it's able to lock and maybe even fire a weapon, well then, okay, now we're going to try to deceive it the best we can and see if we can't break the lock. And then if it still is coming, well then that seduction phase is, hey, never mind the airplane, come back here and get me, which is still, I'm sure, a little unnerving to have a weapon, you know, yeah. traveling yeah. aft. Yeah. And if I remember, I never really dealt with these that much. They came in as I was leaving, but I remember some talk about you're almost better off at that point not maneuvering, which I think would be very, very difficult. I think I remember that because basically yeah. if you started maneuvering too much, like in the vertical, mm-hmm. it would be like a whip, you know, mm-hmm. and then you could whip that thing off the end of the cable right. or something like that. So, yeah, it was a little bit of maneuvering, but it wouldn't be like the maneuvering uh, that would 
you would do with chaffer flare or anything right, like that. Right. Yeah. And the idea was that, okay, let's give the jammer the best chance. And then, yeah. if I recall correctly, the idea was keep your eye on the weapon, if you see it, the missile, I should say, and make sure it's tracking aft on the canopy. Yeah. Because if it's holding a constant bearing decrease in range, well, then you're probably out of luck. But if it's tracking aft a little bit, then it's going to take some you know, steel, you know, what's, but yeah. you got to wait and let that thing go back there. And then even then the ideal situation is that the tow decoy is outside of the lethal warhead, lethal radius of yeah. the warhead of the weapon that's targeting you. Yeah. And you might feel maybe a little concussion wave, perhaps, I don't know, but the idea is it blows yeah. off the little expendable decoy yep. instead of your tail. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I remember like on, uh, on the F-16, we, we carried them, we had multiple, decoys mm-hmm. on because uh, they carried them up uh, on the wings oh wow so it was part of a missile pylon okay so yeah and so if you were maneuvering and you're leading or trailing it well only the trailing edge would matter but if your flaps were coming down a little bit that wasn't a concern or did they just no not? they were outboard of that they'd be out on like number one or two i think oh wow and number one or what was it how many pylons was nine it? i think something like that yeah right. they'd be so then two not on the the wing tips but okay inboard there. so two so, and eight yeah two something and eight, like yeah. that cool i'm pretty sure that's where they All right. were It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Now, so, yeah, we only carry a handful of the toad decoys. What about the other chaff flare and uh, the active expendables? How many do you guys carry on an F-16? I think the A's and B's, which are like the oldest F-16s in the world right now that are still in Fallon, we carried, I want to say, 60, although we never carried 60. But I think there was room for two buckets, and each bucket had about 30. Does that sound See, right? yeah, I, I think so. And I think, actually, we might have carried around 90 or something, because I remember seeing three buckets. Okay. In there, so I think it might have been like sixty chaff and thirty flare, or something huh. like that. Okay, that, that that seems to ring a bell, but I'm not quite sure. positive. But yeah, something like that. And then, like I said, we had numerous. Um, I think there was two per station for the uh, decoys okay. out on the wings. So. Yeah. Okay. Now, on the earlier lot, I want to say twelve, maybe even fourteen or so F-18s and below. We only had one bucket under each intake on the bottom of the aircraft, so we could only carry sixty total oh, okay. expendables, which goes fast if you yeah, really, no, need, it really if you does. need them. Yep. And then on later F-18s and all the Super Hornets, they ended up putting two buckets on each side, so a total of one hundred twenty. Okay. And we used on the earlier F-18s the ALE thirty-nine. Now that ended up being replaced by the ALE forty-seven. I don't know if that sounds familiar with what yeah, you the ALE forty-seven is what we have. Is that what you use? Yep. Okay. Yep. And that one's. What you would expect from a modern-day fighter. You program the aircraft and the system, and you have a bunch of different options. But yep. I'll tell you, the ALE-39, I don't know if you ever heard about this, we had in the hell hole behind the ejection seat, so you had to set it on pre-flight, and then you couldn't reach it again. You had little thumb wheels, and you had to basically tell the aircraft what was in 
left 10, left 20, right 10, oh, really? right 20 of each bucket. You had to give it a C, an F, or a, something else, I think, a J for jammer. And based on that, then you could set a program, and then you always had, if on the throttle switch, if you rocked forward, you always had chaff, and if you rocked aft, you'd get a flare out of every subsection that you labeled as flare. So if you had hmm. 10 left and 10 right, well, you still only had 10 actuations because you'd get one out of each one. Wow. And so it was a really, yeah, a really bizarre system and a really limiting system, I should say. But to be fair, I mean, it was probably developed in the 70s. Yeah. So it was the yeah. best we had. But the ALE 47, right, you could set up, what, programs and then select different programs? Yeah, and I think that was all loaded in when you loaded the big the, the big brick there. Mm-hmm. I think it was part of that. So when you put it in the aircraft, it said, okay, I know what you want, and then you could do that. And there might have been, it's so fuzzy now, some, you could select different programs, I think, on the panel. So when you hit the switches, it would do that. Right. And I believe it was based on the threat. Yeah. Right? So yeah. theoretically, you shouldn't have to switch too much on a flight. But as I recall, if you had mostly an air-to-air threat, then you could set the program one way. Yeah. If it was an air or a surface-to-air threat, then another. Yep. And the idea being that you can mix in different types, like we talked about those different types of flares. So in some cases, you might want a combination of different flares yep. or a certain number of chaff in a certain interval between them. Yeah. Because correct. what we know about the enemy is that this certain pattern will do the best in decoying them. And then as I recall on the ALE-47, uh, as you said, the fence checks, one of the things we'll do is we'll put out a chaff and a flare uh, before we go into country to know that they're working. Yes. And we had a program to just do that so we didn't spit out like 10 or 20 yeah. just by hitting the button. Yep. All right. And then we talked about maneuvering, and that was obviously very important, as well for the flares as it is for chaff, although we didn't really talk too much about that. And then... What about some counter-countermeasures, though, right? So we talked about the arms race at the very beginning. But, you know, while we are coming up with chaff and flares and different now toad decoys, the enemy is not just sitting around, right? And we're probably doing the same with our weapons. Yeah. We put in infrared counter-countermeasures, IRCCM. Talk to us about those a little bit. Uh, So basically, there's things built into the weapon systems, so the missiles themselves, that they anticipate getting decoyed. So essentially there might be some biases in, or it might look at things such as, you know, velocity or the momentum of the direction you're going. So when it sees a heat signature going the other direction, it'll know, no, there's no way this thing could be going backwards right now. I'm still going to look forward. So it knows not to bite off on, on something like that. So that might be an example. Yeah. That one example. Another is, you know, getting geeky here for a second, you know, the IR spectrum, certain engines and intakes and leading edge surfaces might be in one portion of the IR spectrum. And if the enemy does the same thing that we do, which is try to get their hands on our equipment, then they might know, oh, this flare burns at this part of the spectrum. And look how quickly it rises to that. So you've got this temporal and spectral type analysis that an IRCCM seeker can do. And it can say, oh, look how quickly that got hot. And look, like you said, the velocity of it in the wrong direction. Uh, Forget about it, right? Yeah. So instead now then we come up with the future of flares, which are either the kinematic or the forward firing, right? Yeah. So essentially to try to counter that counter that's right uh it would shoot the flares just think about basically throwing the flare out in front of the airplane so it maybe try to get it to bite off in that and then you combine that with some maneuvering so you throw a flare out in front of you and then you turn or you dive or climb or something like that and that might try to to get it to bite off on that 
Right. So I, I'm struggling with an analogy here, but a little bit like sometimes when my kids and I play with bottle rockets, although we're not supposed to in California, but you know, we'll light them in our hand and then throw them up in the air. And if you time it right, it will launch from the air instead of falling and then going who knows where. Yeah. And a little bit like that, the flare will come out and burn for a moment. And then all of a sudden it fires forward. And somehow they've built into that, that it knows to do that. Yep. And the idea being that seeker who says, oh, never mind, it's going backwards. Oh, wait, it's going forward. Then as you maneuver in your F-16, as you just said, then hopefully it bites off yeah. on the thing going forward. And then I've never heard much more about this, but when I was the threat aircraft SME in Top Gun, we used to say that the MiG-29 had forward firing flares from way back when. And I don't know if this was, I assume it was true because I used to brief it, but um, they would load certain types of shells into their 30 millimeter gun. Like the first 10 or 20 rounds out of their 150 would be like forward firing flares. Did oh, really? Ever, yeah, no, I never heard that. Like that. No. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. I, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I should probably go back and research it huh. and uh, make sure. But I, that's something we used to brief too. But I think the tactical significance of it was pretty lame because you know, if you're fighting for your life with a guy behind you, are you going to have the wherewithal to uh, you know reach in and select yeah. gun and then pull the trigger? And exactly. Is it going to stop automatically, or do you have to yeah. figure it out? You know. <laughs> um, and getting back to the ALE, ALE 39, that was something I forgot to mention. Is we used to have to arm the master arm switch in order to get expendables out in the ALE 39. But yeah, we, we did not. Yeah, yeah. neither did the later the ALE 47, yeah. Yeah. which is good because it makes it easier just to be careful yeah. on your fence checks as well as in training, for yep. sure, because we do expend these in training. And uh, But yeah, that was always uh, a fire breaks, we would call it. Huh. You know, okay. you, That's just a rule meaning, hey, when you arm up, just make sure everything else is as safe and off as you can get. Yeah. Check it and then turn it right back off. Yeah. Or, you know, if you didn't have anything you know, releasable or forward firing, if you were just in training, then it usually wasn't a big deal. You would arm up at the yeah. fights on and safe up at, at the uh, knock it off. Yeah. But yeah, that was a, that was a consideration on the older aircraft as well. I think one thing, another, one quick point too, I remember when I was just leaving the F-16, that's when they started getting all these, what is it? Fourth generation fighters now. So we're talking like, you know, F-22, F-35, what are the Russian those are arguably those? fifth generation, right? Or fifth, whatever. Yeah, yeah like I said, yeah. So the the our modern fighters and stuff. I know, right. uh, you know, obviously with the advancement in the airframes, the weapons have advanced too. And I know there were some fights basically in in our tactics where they said, "Don't go to it." And if you end up there, the the best countermeasure was try to keep that missile from leaving the rail because once it left the rail, there w there was nothing you were going to do about it. Especially as technology continues yeah. to improve. Yeah. And that's the thing. So the, the best defense is to, to have them not shoot it. But I mean, that's pretty difficult in a sense too. So, right. But yeah. Okay. So we talked about the kinematic flares. I don't know if those are operational yet or not. We've both been out of the saddle for a little while. But anything else coming down the line that you know of as far as expendables go? Uh, well, I know it's it's not just the fighter thing. I mean, uh, on the MC-12, we had AL-47, and we had we didn't have chaff, but we had flare on there because hmm. a big threat flying around the mountains of Afghanistan was your uh, service missiles okay. coming up and get you like your uh, little Russian shoulder-mounted missiles and stuff sure. like that, or even um, from some of their vehicles and stuff. So. Uh, we had countermeasures on there uh, with the flares, and then even uh, you've seen them on some civilian aircraft now. They have systems that are made for chaff and flares. So I think uh, there's stuff in the works that even on our tankers somewhere down the road, they're talking about 
putting those on there as yeah. well. Or even, uh, I, th- I thought I saw something about the KC-46, that, that Boeing might be putting them right on the KC-46 okay. right off the bat. And that's the that's the new 767 equivalent tanker. It's right. going to replace the, the KC-135. Yep. So. Yeah, we talked about that way back on episode five, I want to say, with Dud. We did an aerial refueling uh, episode. So, yeah, so that's a good point. What types of aircraft then, apart from the ones you just described, also have flares? I mean, I guess helicopters. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's a pretty um, important. CV-22, MV-22, I assume. C-17, C-130s, they oh, all have them. Okay. So, I mean, there's there's a pretty famous picture. Um, I think it's a C-130, and it's got that. They launched the flares, and you can see the big bloom behind it and, right. and, and everything. So, yeah. It looks like angel. Yeah. I think they call it the angel flares Something or the angel like picture yep. because you got them going off both sides, and they, to your point, fall due to gravity, of course. Yep. So they look like the angel wings, and then some going straight down. Yep. Even like B-1, they shoot flares off the top. Hmm. which was kind of interesting, and I didn't realize that. And uh, the whole rationale behind that is if they're flying low levels, mm-hmm. shooting flares down don't do anything. Ah. So you want to shoot them up and over, and they, uh, yeah. So I, I learned that out no there. Kidding. Like even the B1, they have them, but they shoot yeah. them out the top if I remember right, yeah. Well, the MiG-29 does as well. Okay. Uh, and in fact, they even cant them forward a little bit to try to get away from that quick drop-off uh, yeah. aft. So if they project them a little bit forward, certainly they're going to go back right away due to the wind stream, yeah. but they at least start out for it. So that's interesting yeah. because what, the B-1 was designed partly for low-level ingress, I yeah. assume? Yeah, super okay. go low, go fast, and, I mean, get the nukes there, basically right. is what it was yeah. designed for. Wow. So, And then the rest of those aircraft, you know, again, if they are in an IR weapon envelope, to your earlier point, as far as if you're getting shot at, you're in trouble, but... It's just, you know, a relatively low-cost way to, to try to protect ourselves. Yeah. And so put them on there and use them if you have to. And, and it's certainly better than nothing. And not to say that they're not that effective. But, you know, again, for something large like a C-130, C-17, it's going to be pretty tough to, uh, yeah. to decoy. And your hope there is, as evidenced by that C-130 video, I'll see if I can link to that on the show, is, man, if you can just put enough out to just completely overwhelm any system, exactly. whether it's radar yep. or IR, that at least you've given yourself a chance. Yep. Yep. And that's and that's all you might need. You just need just a chance, and you mm-hmm. might be able to pull it off. So. Right. Yeah. And then again, anything that's going to get low and slow, like a helicopter or a Osprey, then they're going to want to have the same, yep. the same thing. Yep. Cool. All right, man. Yeah, we don't have to uh, belabor this too much. Anything else on chaff flares, expendables, decoys, et cetera? There, there's one other thing I forgot to mention. Okay. It, it's kind of a neat little story uh-huh. uh, about the flares. And I remember, because we used to fly with uh, NVG's night vision goggles yeah. at night in the F-16. And I remember the first time flying at night uh, with the NVG's, they had told us to get ready because um, when you pop a flare, you're going to see this airplane fly over your airplane. And, and what I mean is, you know, I, I remember when the instructor said that, I'm like, what do you mean another airplane's going to fly over the airplane? I, I, don't, I don't understand this. And he goes, you'll, you'll see. So there we are, and we're, this is just a training sortie. So we go through and we do a G warm-up maneuver. So um, when you do that 180 turn, just to make sure your body's ready and everything, right. um, we would do a chaff and flare check as well. Well, at night, a flare check, um, just to make sure that that was working. So you'd look at your uh, wingman, and you'd look and make sure he shot flares out. Well... Obviously, I was. This was when I was new to the F sixteen, so I was a young guy, and I popped my flare, and then I remember ducking because something flew over the airplane. And essentially, what happened was, um, when you shoot a flare at night with the NVGs on, the flare casts your own shadow above you, 
and it actually flies forward away from you. Like so on the inside lo- of the canopy? Yeah. So wow. And your NVGs pick this up, so it looks like another airplane is flying over your airplane. And, huh. and it really gets your attention. And even, even when you're expecting it, sometimes it'll still kind of throw you off or catch you off guard a little bit because you're like, okay, I know this is going to happen. And then you'd see the, the shadow go over, but it would be the silhouette wow. of an F-16 going over. So I thought that would be a, a neat little story that your listeners that, might Yeah, might very enjoy. good. So, yeah. Well, while you were talking about that, you actually reminded me of one more thing, and I'll put you on the spot. I didn't tell you I was going to ask this. Do you remember the com brevity term for putting out a flare? Huh? Oh, man, what was that? Uh, Sorry, dude, put you on the spot. Yeah, no, Hot I, shot? Did you guys no, ever use that? No. You never used Hotshot? No. Okay. We did. Not so much in actual employment. Yeah. But like if you were putting out, whether it was maybe for a fence check or specifically like for a night bombing or uh, air-to-air missile type shot. And then as I recall, the com brevity term for a chaff corridor, which we would never put out in fighters because we just didn't have enough of it, uh, would be confetti. And I guess the idea was is you were raining down so much of that aluminum foil that it felt like confetti. But yeah, anyway, we haven't done an episode on calm yet, but it might be coming up soon. So we'll start throwing in some yeah. of those calm brevity terms. But yeah, that's interesting about the F-16. I don't remember, frankly, even putting out flares in the F-16 anyway, let alone at night. And I almost yeah. never flew at night. So okay. Oh, actually, you know what? We didn't wear goggles in the F-16 in the Navy. Um, oh, okay. The, can- the cockpit, just the lighting. Yeah. Was, and we just never messed with it. So. All right. Well, before we let you go back to studying, though, uh, we got two final questions we always ask. What's the future hold for you? Uh, continue flying for the airlines. Okay. Having a good time there. And I've got uh, three and a half years left until I'll hit my 20 and I can retire. So from then I'll be the from the Air National Guard. Air National Guard. Yeah. Okay. So then I'll retire and uh, it would be a good career. I mean, I yeah. had uh, at that point, hopefully I retire with 15 active years and then, you know, the rest of it will just be guard time. So, yeah. Is done. there any reason? I don't know that much about guard. Is there any reason to stay past 20? Uh, it so, depends. I mean, if, if you want to make 06, do something okay. like that, you uh-huh. know, obviously stay past 20. Some guys, so there's, when I, when I say traditional, that's your, your part-time guy. And mm-hmm. I'm sure most people are familiar with the guard being, you know, one week in a month, two weeks a year. That's the but, commercials. Yeah, yeah, but obviously it's a little bit different being a pilot because we have currencies and we fly during the month. So we don't do the two weeks a year because on a normal month, I go in my one weekend for our drill weekend, and then I'll probably fly, I don't know, three to five times locally. So, I mean, throughout the year, we end up making up that time in comparison to someone who would go and do duty for two weeks So okay. since we do that throughout the year. so But, yeah, so I'm a traditional guardsman. But then you have your full-time guard guys, um, which are AGRs, and that's Active Guard Reserve. So they're actually on active duty orders, and that counts uh, towards an active duty retirement. So a lot of those guys are trying to reach their 20 years, so when they retire at 20, mm-hmm. they collect their pension right just like an active duty okay. guy. Whereas in my case, even though I did, I left active duty with 11 and some change, and then I've had a, a bunch of active duty time. Like I just deployed this last summer. That counts towards my active retirement, but if I don't hit the 20 with active duty time, I have to wait until I'm 60 to collect my retirement. Oh, wow. So, so yeah. you'll have, let's say you get done with your 20 at 45 or something, you would have from 45 to 60 with an ID card so you can get on yes. base and get the privileges yes. and probably the, uh, what do we call the uh, medical that we have? Uh, tri-care. TRICARE. Yeah, yeah. thank you. But you won't actually get a paycheck until you turn 60. Correct. Okay. And in comparison to someone who is just a straight guard member their whole career, because I have all that active duty time, that changes the amount 
of uh, my okay. retirement. So it won't be the same. Like another guy who retires at 20 years, that's, you know, I'll be a lieutenant colonel by that time. But my pension will be a little bit more than someone who's been purely a guard guy that doesn't have as much active duty time. Gotcha. So, yeah. Okay. So when you do get paid, the amount you get. Yes. Will it vary it, it reflects the active duty time okay. you've done. Cool. So, yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, our last question we always ask here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast is, how did you get your call sign? Now, before you answer, Bauer, the photo you gave me to use on your episode has a different call sign on it. So, so yeah. So uh, I'm sure if people look at it, uh, it says sumo on there, and uh, it's probably pretty wise or obvious. I'm a big Asian guy, so sumo <laughs> would be applicable there. But um, yeah, the way it worked going to Korea, because they were one-year remotes there, a lot of Korean squadrons, they would do the, they would rename guys there, especially if they came straight from the B course, because um, you hadn't really earned a or got a call sign yet. So mm-hmm. I got named when I got to Osan, but then when I went back to Hill and I, I got there, they did another naming. And essentially, Bauer comes from Jack Bauer from the show 24. Okay. And the, the since this is a, a G-rated, family-friendly podcast, we'll Thank just you. say that... 24 hours in Vegas with me, because we I got it when we were down at Nellis. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the story is either I will do something to get a new call sign or somebody else involved with the shenanigans of being in Vegas with me will get a new call sign. So <laughs> so they, they decided to name me Bauer out All of right. that. Well, so. I appreciate the family-friendly version. Yes. And then you said one-year remote. So I, I interpret that having no experience in that realm as being you get, what, is that a deployment or just okay. an assignment? Yeah, so the way the Air Force works, because uh, we obviously have the, the base at Osan and the one down in Kunsan. Mm-hmm. When we would go over there, uh, it wasn't a three-year bring-your-family typical okay. Air Force kind of tour. You know, just generically speaking, that's typically what they are, about three years, you know, sure. and when you go somewhere, your family goes. Right. With the way Korea is, they would send people there, and you would go for a year. You could volunteer for two, and Osan... Uh, they had family structures there, so there were families there and, and people there that had their families there. But Kunsan was always remote. They didn't have a lot of the like family housing and all that kind of okay. stuff down there. So uh, if you went to Kunsan, you were going by yourself. Uh, but Osan, you could go for a year, and if you went for a year, the Air Force said, yeah, well, it's just going to be you. It's not going to be your family that goes with you for a year. Okay. And then you could volunteer, and you could stay for two uh, and then take your family and get family housing there and everything. So that's they considered it a remote assignment because you weren't going with your family, and okay. it was only for a year. I bet you still made the most of it and had some fun. Sure. It, would you guys redeploy anywhere else from there? No, no. So when, there the time? when you're in Korea, your whole job is peninsula defense. Uh, you okay. are there for Korea, and that's okay. your only purpose. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, and there was guys that would go over there for the year, and they'd bring their, their families, and they'd live on the economy outside the game. Uh, okay. You know, so, I mean... There, there were still people who did that kind of thing, but I mean... Interesting. Yeah. Well, you're only our second Air Force guest, I'm sorry to say, on this show, but <laughs> I warned everybody at the beginning. It was like, look, I was a Navy guy, and most of my friends are, so yeah. I'm learning here, too. I appreciate a little background on yeah. that. Anyway, uh, awesome hour. Yeah, right. one one other thing, too. Yeah. Sorry. I just, just this That's came okay, to me, man. too. So your, your listeners, since you obviously said that I'm only the second Air Force guy, so I don't know if the other Air Force guy said this or not, but... For the listeners out there, so they can understand the difference between Navy flying and Air Force Uh-oh. flying, <laughs> the way to look at it is the, the way the Navy regs are written is your regs only say what you can't do. Cannot. Can't, yeah, what right. you cannot do. And in the Air Force, the way our regs are written, it only says what you can do. So there's a lot more leeway, from my understanding, in Navy yeah. flying than there is in Air Force flying, because if it doesn't say you can do it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> Where the, the way it was explained to me, the way the Navy has it is obviously, hey, it doesn't say I can't do it, so right. I must be all right. So yeah. so I know there's always a lot of times you hear the the friendly bickering and, and, and you know jabbing at each other about that, and, and that was something 
that was told to me a while yeah. ago about the difference between AV or Navy uh, flying and Air Force flying. You know, I've heard that too. I have no personal evidence of that other than anecdotal. But someday on this show, thank you for saying that, we will get a person on here who's either a Navy guy and did a long Air Force joint tour or vice versa, and we'll have them wax poetic on that. How's that sound? Yeah, yeah, I think that would be <laughs> beneficial. <laughs> awesome. All right, Bauer. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. You bet. Thanks. thanks. All right, let's get out of here. All right, once again, big thank you to Utah Air National Guard Major Sean Demeter. Bauer, thanks for coming on the show today, taking time out from your training to uh, talk to us about expendables. We learned a lot, so we really appreciate it. For the listeners, just a couple things. One is the new terms and acronyms you heard today will be, as always, listed in the glossary tab on our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And the second thing is we forgot to discuss training rounds. Now, in the United States, we don't want to dispense chaff that could interfere with the FAA's radar. So we have specific training rounds that only work on air-to-air radars found in the different fighter aircraft. As well as for flares, it's not so big a deal to decoy an actual weapon system, of course. We just want something that we can debrief each other. Hey, I saw your flares come out. So they need to be bright and smoky, just like some of the flares that are actual employment-type flares. All right. Well, that was a great episode. I hope you enjoyed it. A couple parting shots here. Jacob, your question about the two-seat aircraft, I completely neglected to discuss the performance degradation that you asked about. Now, I cannot talk about the F-15 or 16, but I can tell you that the single-seat F-A-18C and E does enjoy a slight performance advantage over the D and F, mainly because the latter models there have the larger canopy to accommodate the dual crew. And with the larger canopy comes a little more drag, a little more departure concerns from controlled flight and ending up in certain types of out of control flight. And so it is a little bit of a degradation, but for the most part, it's not that big a deal. And in fact, the Blue Angels who, as you know, maneuver their aircraft to the ultimate edge of what an F-18 can do, will routinely replace a single seat with a two-seater. You'll sometimes see it in the slot position. I think I saw some pictures recently where it was on the left or the right wing. So it is a little bit there, but it's not that noticeable. All right, one other thing I want to send you off with is with the holidays coming up, we here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast want to mention that if you would be so willing to do your shopping, if you are not already supporting some other program or charity, that if you would go to our website and to the shop link, we have a shop Amazon link where if you click through there and make your purchases on Amazon, it doesn't cost you any more money, but we get a little kickback through the Amazon affiliate program and it helps keep this show going. Now, if you're looking for some cool fighter pilot podcast swag, you can tell your loved ones to look on Cafe Press for you, and there are shirts and other things. As well, hopefully soon, we will have a new website coming out called Society6 with different artwork with some of Eric Larson's photography. He's our fighter pilot podcast photographer. So look for that real soon, and we might even have some newsletters 
proposing different products that you might find interesting or someone you know. So as you shop for the holidays, please keep us in mind because for the most part, it shouldn't cost you anything else, but it helps keep this show going. We've made it almost a full year now without having to play ads, and we prefer it that way. But your help could be very useful for us to keep this going. As well, there's always Patreon where you can gain access to exclusive content and get head-of-line privileges like some of our listener questions had today. All right. Well, that will do it then for this episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I want to remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Thanks, Jaime Lopez, for the cool ripping bumper music on the intro and outro. And for all you veterans out there, once again, thank you for your service. Thank you for your sacrifice. And happy Veterans Day, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content and to help support the show, visit our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow-ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.